0: Welcome to How Not to Die, a Diagnostic Detectives Network conversation. Here, leading doctors share with you a lifetime of wisdom and knowledge. I'm Dr. Anton Titov, founder of Diagnostic Detectives Network. To learn more, visit us at diagnosticdetectives.com. We live in precision medicine era. If you want the best outcome, you can no longer treat your physician like a plumber. Fix the leak, but spare me the details you must learn to navigate the complexity of modern medicine. Our mission is to help you do that. This episode is sponsored by no one. We do not accept any advertisements, sponsorships, endorsements or affiliations. We stay free from conflicts of interest so common in medicine today. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for any medical decisions. Let's proceed. Hello from New York, we are with Dr. Scott Friedman, liver diseases expert. We will discuss fatty liver disease, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, and liver fibrosis. Dr. Friedman is Dean for Therapeutic Discovery and Chief of the Division of Liver Diseases at the Icahn School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Dr. Friedman is Professor of Medicine and Professor of Pharmacological Sciences at Mount Sinai. Dr. Scott Friedman obtained his MD from Mount Sinai School of Medicine. He did a residency in medicine at Beth Israel Hospital in Boston and fellowship in gastroenterology at University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Friedman was a faculty at UCSF for 10 years. He was also a visiting professor at the Weizmann Institute of Science in Israel. He then returned to continue his academic and clinical career in New York. Professor Friedman has performed pioneering research uh, into the underlying causes of liver scarring known as fibrosis. Uh, These are key events in chronic liver diseases. His work has direct implications for the reversal of liver fibrosis and also for treatment of fatty liver disease and other chronic liver diseases. Professor Friedman has received numerous U.S. and international awards in recognition of his pioneering liver disease research. He published over 450 articles in peer-reviewed international medical journals and multiple books and book chapters on liver diseases. Professor Friedman, hello and welcome.
1: Hello. Delighted to be here, Anton. Thank you for including me.
0: Professor Friedman, what is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? What are the diagnostic criteria for it?
1: So let me provide a little context. As many of us know, there is a growing prevalence of obesity, and that is associated with complications in many systems, including diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia. And among those also is included the possibility of fat accumulating in the liver. Most patients who have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease are overweight or obese, although it can occur in about 5% of patients in lean individuals. But NAFLD, or Non-Alcoholic Fatty Liver Disease, refers to the presence of either fat alone or a more advanced stage known as non-alcoholic steatohepatitis or NASH, in which in addition to fat, there is the accumulation of inflammation, of injury to liver cells, and the uh, slow but steady accumulation of scar or fibrosis that can lead in some cases to advanced liver disease known as cirrhosis. NAFLD can also be complicated particularly at advanced stages by the emergence of cancer primarily hepatocellular carcinoma or primary liver cancer it's estimated that somewhere in the order of 40 percent of Americans have some degree of fat in their liver of course most of them only have fat but probably about 20 to 25 percent of that 40 million uh, have uh, nash as well and so it's a very prevalent problem it's often below the radar, even for physicians, let alone patients. Uh, And it portends a rising risk of uh, advanced liver disease if we don't begin to understand and treat it effectively.
0: So are there specific diagnostic criteria and the key diagnostic tests that I performed to identify clinical
1: NAFLD? Yes, there are both non-invasive and more invasive tests that can establish the presence of NAFLD. Because NAFLD, requires the presence of fat, there are a number of imaging tests, particularly ultrasound, but also MR and CT scans that can identify fat in the liver. There are other tests known as uh, fibroscan, which can non-invasively detect stiffness in the liver that would suggest there may be some early scarring. Uh, And of course, the more definitive and invasive way to diagnose NAFLD, which is not done in most patients, is liver biopsy. But in circumstances where we're concerned about the stage of the disease, or we're not completely convinced that it's NAFLD, then we can do a liver biopsy and look at the tissue under the microscope.
0: So NAFLD happens as part of the metabolic syndrome, and most patients are obese. Can non-alcoholic fatty liver disease happen in lean, non obese patients?
1: Yes, it can, and that's an important point, Anton. Uh, While... 90, 95% of the patients with NAFLD are obese. There is a subset, which seems to be of higher prevalence among different ethnicities, for example, among Asians, both South Asians, uh, as well as those from the Far East, for reasons we don't know, but presumably in part because of genetic factors. There is the possibility of so-called lean NASH, where the patient is not obese, and yet they still have the features of NASH, and those patients are at equal risk. And it's not clear that the body mass index, which of course is a measure of obesity, is by itself a major risk factor, except when it is associated with other comorbidities, in particular type 2 diabetes. So the presence of type 2 diabetes in patients, uh, particularly those who are obese, but especially those with NAFLD, diabetes confers a heightened risk of developing NASH and progressing to fibrosis and cirrhosis.
0: For diagnostic tests to diagnose fatty liver disease and and, and NASH, of course, there are liver enzymes that I use. There is also platelet levels. Uh, There are several scores. There is also a notion that over several decades, the sort of the upper limit of normal levels for ALT, for example, has been sort of risen as a formal age. Does that mean that it just reflects the higher prevalence of the subclinical NAFLD. I read the numbers like 25 was 20 years ago, the norm. The test hasn't changed and now it's about 40.
1: Well, that's a very important point, uh, Anton. First, let me say that uh, AST and ALT, which are conventional liver tests, are actually enzymes contained within liver cells. And when the liver is damaged, it releases those enzymes and we can measure that with a standard lab assay. Uh, They're often referred incorrectly as liver function tests, they're really liver injury tests. And uh, the problem is they're relatively nonspecific and patients can harbor quite a bit of NASH or NAFLD and their AST and ALT may not necessarily be elevated. When it is elevated, it's not necessarily only from NAFLD, so we need to exclude other causes, in particular viral hepatitis or perhaps immune disorders or even drug reactions. Um, That along with platelets are indicative of some liver problem, but they're just not specific enough to NASH or NAFLD for us to use them as a diagnostic test. It does indicate that we need to do further evaluation, either with more imaging, possibly with scan and perhaps even with liver biopsy to sort out the reason for those elevated tests.
0: So perhaps from a clinical perspective, if uh, fatty liver disease NAFLD is suspected, or somebody really wants to find out that they should do a structural test, such as uh, uh, elastic, um, el- elastography, or magnetic resonance elastography, sort of to ascertain the structure of the liver, not just look at the ALT
1: and AST and, and platelets. Absolutely, and uh, certainly non-invasive imaging is always uh warranted, particularly ultrasound, to make sure there's nothing focal. Ultrasound is not a good test for scarring, but it can determine or identify fat. Uh, There are other tests, in particular MR fat fraction, uh, that can more accurately quantify the amount of fat and give us an indication of whether there might be scarring. And As you mentioned, tests that measure the stiffness of the liver, particularly a test known as transient elastography, Uh, The commercial name that's most commonly used is FibroScan, but there are other devices that also measure stiffness. That can also indicate whether there's uh, any disease and how advanced relatively it might be. Is
0: fatty liver disease, NAFLD, reversible, and what are the conditions
1: for its reversibility? Also a very important question. Yes, it's absolutely reversible. In fact, you know, fat in the liver can Uh, wax and wane depending on the body mass index and and perhaps environmental factors. So we know fat can be cleared from the liver relatively quickly. uh, And so for sure that part is reversible. There's even evidence that under certain circumstances the inflammation and fibrosis associated with NASH may also be reversible. The best data currently comes from the results of bariatric surgery in large uh, groups of patients. And there have been a number of important publications That document that the liver fat and NASH can regress in patients who undergo bariatric surgery, particularly if they lose quite a bit of weight. What we don't have yet is a pharmacologic therapy that has been approved that can convincingly reduce both fat and inflammation and scarring. And certainly that r- remains the, in, the most intense area of focus in the drug development space, is to get a, a medication approved that will reduce the amount of inflammation and scarring and not just the amount of fat.
0: So non-alcoholic steatohepatitis is a progression of fatty liver disease.
1: How does NASH actually differ from NAFLD? So NASH uh, confers or implies that in addition to fat, so remember, NAFLD is kind of an umbrella term. And most patients with NAFLD have plain fat. Sometimes we call that non-alcoholic fatty liver. But a subgroup will not only have fat, but they will have inflammation, injury to hepatocytes, and the beginning or development of scarring. So it's the inflammation, injury, and scarring component that defines NASH as more than just simple fat alone.
0: And what drives the progression from NAFLD to non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, sort of the next next
1: stage, NASH? Uh, We wish we knew. Uh, There are a lot of hints. So, for example, uh, as I mentioned, most patients with fat in the liver have nothing but fat, and that's not a cause for alarm. It certainly tells us that the patient is at risk for more advanced disease. But again, most patients don't have fat. And yet that subset of patients who go on to develop NASH have uh, uh, you know, an increased risk of complications as I've noted. We don't know why some patients only have fat and others will progress. As I mentioned, diabetes is one of the risk factors. There may also be genetic risk factors. Now they're not the most dominant Cause of uh, fat and progression to NASH. But we do know that there are a growing list of genes with single uh, base pair or DNA sequence changes that collectively can increase or decrease the risk of progressing from progressing from fatty liver disease to Nash. And certainly family history, which is probably a surrogate for genetics, but also for a shared microbiome and diet, uh, family history can be very important. So if a patient tells me that their parents had, or one of their parents or a sibling had NASH, that raises my index of suspicion considerably that they too may have NASH and not just simply plain fat in the liver.
0: More and more people now do extensive genetic screening, including whole genome sequencing. So other particular panels that can alert a person to that they might be predisposed to NASH even though they might not have metabolic syndrome, they might
1: not be overweight? Yes. So uh, in fact, uh, even 23andMe uh, and commercial uh, uh, DNA testing platforms will indicate to patients that they may be at heightened risk. So uh, we don't use genetics for screening. Uh, It's not appropriate because there are probably many patients who have the genetic risk but don't have the disease. On the other hand, once we diagnose NAFLD or NASH, the presence of genetic risks may tell us that that patient is at heightened risk for progression and may require more, uh, more assertive or more careful monitoring or more frequent monitoring.
0: So microbiome and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, including you know, NASH, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, what is the role of diet in gut microbiome
1: dysbiosis in fatty liver disease and in NASH? This is a very important and rapidly growing area. Let me start by saying that uh, we all harbor uh, trillions of bacteria in our intestine. Uh, That collectively is known as the microbiome, and everyone's microbiome is a little bit different. Nonetheless, uh, there is growing evidence, both from animal models and from humans, that the nature of the microbiome may influence the propensity and risk of progression of NASH. We haven't really nailed down which bacteria specifically are the driving force that creates the risk for NASH. Uh, But there is strong evidence that you can transfer NASH from one experimental animal to the other by transplanting their microbiome. And in fact, there are some case studies where microbiome transplant has either conferred a risk of NASH in patients or presence or has attenuated the risk of NASH. So I, I would say we're at the stage now where we're pretty certain there's a strong link between the microbiome and the risk of NASH, but we haven't identified the components of the microbiome sufficiently to use that as a therapeutic or to manipulate the microbiome in a way to treat NASH. Now, the diet certainly has a lot to do with the microbiome, but it's not just the diet. It's also uh, the the household one lives in because typically first-degree relatives who share a household also share the same microbiome. It may also be influenced by the exposure to antibiotics. And let's remember that it's not just the antibiotics that we may take for a a, a cold or better yet for a bacterial infection, which is more appropriate. It's also the antibiotics that may be in our food. So uh, animals, farm animals are fed antibiotics. Uh, They're antibiotics exposed to plants and uh, grains. And so uh, there's a theory that I think is very compelling that suggests that one of the reasons NASH has begun to appear in the last 25 years is because we have systematically changed the population microbiome because of all this pervasive exposure to antibiotics that drives the emergence of different bacteria that may start to increase the risk that we retain energy, retain fat, and ultimately develop NaFLD and NASH. Um, and so, you know, one of the holy grails is to identify the classic or the absolute components of the microbiome that are driving NASH and, of course, then to attenuate them or to change the microbiome. Uh, We're not there yet, but there are both a lot of academic investigators as well as um, uh, commercial companies that are hot on the trail of trying to identify the NASH-causative bacteria, or it could be viruses or fungi as well. They're also part of the intestinal flora. And collectively, to identify those features That ultimately may be driving the emergence or the progression of NASH, and as I mentioned, to attenuate them therapeutically, Um, it seems that the microbiome is very hard to change. So uh, we're kind of uh, we have a relatively fixed microbiome. It can be influenced by by uh, antibiotics, uh, but uh, often the microbiome, even when it changes, goes back to uh, its original steady state. Often, which is uh, increasing the risk of NASH.
0: Professor Friedman, in one of your reviews, you mentioned the auto brewery syndrome, the microbial fermentation of carbohydrates in the gut that actually gives an endogenous production of alcohol, which is then damaging to the liver. Could you please elaborate on that uh, topic?
1: That's a very interesting um, and probably a rare circumstance, but there was uh, a couple of cases that have been uh, described, including one very compelling detailed description from China, that described a particular bacterium, Klebsiella, I mean, a particular subspecies of Klebsiella that the bacteria generated ethanol and that ethanol percolates from the intestine through the portal vein, which drains from the intestine into the liver and effectively injures the liver because of high levels of ethanol. Now, wh- why is that tantalizing? Uh, because remember that the name we currently use for the disease is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Why do we call it non-alcoholic? And the reason is because when the disease first started to appear, it looked like alcoholic liver disease. And in fact, patients were often thought to be surreptitiously drinking. And it took a few years to sort out that no, even though it looks like alcohol, uh, it's non-alcoholic. Now, in the case of the brewery syndrome, uh, and we don't think this is a major cause of NASH, but it does speak to the idea that in extreme circumstances, the bacteria in the intestine can lead to changes in the liver, in this case through ethanol. Um, And so this was one example, and perhaps there are a few others, where bacteria are actually making a metabolite, in this case ethanol, that causes effectively alcoholic, non-alcoholic liver disease, meaning that they're not drinking alcohol, but the bugs are making alcohol that's percolating into the liver and damaging it.
0: You mentioned already the fecal microbiome transplantation. Has FMT been tried uh, to treat uh, non alcoholic steatohepatitis,
1: NASH, and fatty liver disease? It's been tried episodically. Uh, So far, there is no large studies that convincingly demonstrate that FMT or fecal microbiome transplantation is a, a robust and effective means of treating NASH. And uh, I think it may well be that we're not necessarily using the right microbiome, or that the microbiome transplantation isn't durable, meaning that the bugs go back to what they were before. Um, and so I, I would say that there's no convincing evidence yet that FMT is a wide a widespread viable therapy. But I think the jury is very much still out. And as we dig deeper into understanding the composition and the be- and the behavior of bacteria in our intestines, I'm pretty confident we're gonna start to see some inroads that show that selective uh, either FMT or manipulation of the microbiome will have a benefit as a treatment. We're just not there yet.
0: Well, as you also mentioned in one of your reviews, there are strategies, drug the bug, and also bugs as drugs to
1: treat uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and NASH. That's right. So um, it could be transplanting bacteria that have a more healthy profile uh, effectively, becomes the bug becomes a drug uh, and uh, this, along with uh, effectively trying to change the endogenous microbiome, either by manipulating with probiotics or perhaps selective antibiotics, uh, those also can uh, ultimately transform the microbiome and hopefully change the nature of NASH. I think the microbiome becomes particularly compelling as a driver in those patients with lean NASH. I mean, after all, they don't have uh, adipose, excess adipose, and obesity, and yet uh, they have NASH. And uh, to me, that, uh, along with genetic factors and, and uh, ethnic risks, I think speaks to the idea that those patients could have an unusual microbiome or unusual components of their microbiome that are leading to NAFLD, even though they are lean. Again, uh, early days, really, but I'm confident we'll continue to make progress.
0: What about strategies of using sort of small molecules or natural substances such as butyrate? Curcumin was mentioned to decrease pro-inflammatory cytokines, including NF-kappa B.
1: The current approach from the pharmaceutical and biotech industry is to uh, identify drug targets either in the intestine or in the liver uh, that can uh, regulate and therefore can uh, lead to resolution or improvement in NASH. Uh, Butyrate, not so much. Um, You know, there's a a slightly cynical perspective on this, which is that uh, natural compounds uh, and uh, chemicals that might be available to us as over-the-counter supplements are not of great interest to the pharmaceutical industry because they can't be patented and they can't uh, yield uh, a commercial success. And so I think we need to acknowledge that there may be treatments out there, uh, even uh, existing drugs that could be repurposed uh, that are not being adequately pursued because there's no commercial driver. There's no company that's going to benefit uh, commercially from that drug. And so it becomes a little hard to test things like butyrate in part because there's no commercial interest in in uh, developing those kinds of therapies. That is a place where I think foundations and government agencies uh, can fill an important gap in trying to use either natural compounds that are well characterized and safe, or even repurposed drugs that are already off their patent life, but could be very well tolerated. And and we've done a couple of studies in my laboratory showing that drugs that have already been tried for other diseases, to our surprise, have a benefit in NASH as well. Um, Unfortunately, we've not been able to engage the commercial sponsors that hold the patents to actually repurpose those drugs and invest in a clinical NASH therapy program. So there's some real world considerations about how drugs are developed beyond just whether they're effective and safe. Uh, I wish it weren't so, but that's just the way the system works.
0: Professor Friedman, what is a hepatic stellate cell and what is its role in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, NASH? You've done some pioneering
1: work in that regard. Uh, Well, thank you for asking because that's been my passion for almost 40 years now. Uh, The hepatic stellate cell is a resident cell that's in the normal liver. The very interesting cell because it is what's called a liver-specific pericyte. It wraps itself around the blood vessels in the liver. Uh, Those blood vessel units are known as sinusoids. And in normal liver, the stellate cell is relatively quiescent and non-proliferative. And one of the most important functions of a normal stellate cell is to store vitamin A or retinoids. Now, it turns out uh, we discovered almost 40 years ago, I guess around 1983 or so, Uh, that one could isolate those stellate cells originally from mouse and then from human liver and replicate their response in vivo when we grew them in a culture dish. So we developed for the first time a method to isolate stellate cells from, as I said, from rodent and then human liver and show that when they become injured or in the setting of injury, they activate and they become very, uh, very busy cells, very metabolically active. They make a lot of scar, they are contractile, they proliferate, uh, and they lose their vitamin A droplets and become much more like uh, contractile fibroblasts, which are also known as myofibroblasts. Uh, And so that has been the basis of uh, my work, and I'm pleased to say many, many laboratories around the world over the past few decades, because we know that if we can harness an understanding of how stellate cells make scar, perhaps we can interfere with uh, their function as a fibrogenic or scar-making cell. And so there's a lot of effort, both in my laboratory many others, and also in a lot of companies, to understand how stellate cells become fibrogenic and to block their ability to make the scar that leads to fibrosis and cirrhosis. So it's a very interesting cell type. It still remains uh, of great interest to the field, uh, and it continues to yield amazing mysteries about Uh, what it does, how it behaves, how it's regulated, and ultimately, uh, how we can attenuate its activity to prevent scar formation.
0: So, considering this huge importance of hepatic stellate cells, are there specific therapies that target those cells or some of their metabolism, perhaps the environment around them? What are the hepatic stellate cell-directed therapies for fatty liver
1: disease? That's an important question uh, because, let me just step back for a minute and remind uh, our viewers that uh, NASH is comprised of fat, uh, inflammation, and then scarring. So approaches to treating NASH with new drugs aren't just focused on the scarring, they're also focused on attenuating the injury that is driving the scarring. But in addition, there are drugs that are specifically attacking the stellate cells in hopes of turning off their scar machinery. Um, Among those are molecules that block receptors on the cell surface. For example, integrins, uh, so-called tyrosine kinase receptors, as well as molecules like TGF, or transforming growth factor beta, connective tissue growth factor beta. There are a number of molecules and receptors that are on the surface or expressed in the milieu that drive the activation of stellate cells. And so there's a concerted effort to block those pathways that make the cells fibrogenic. Is a more revolutionary and kind of futuristic approach uh, that we were, uh, in my lab was uh, participating in, that came from the laboratory of Dr. Scott Lowe and Michelle Satellane, where they developed a very specialized kind of uh, attacking lymphocyte known as a CAR T cell, which stands for chimeric antigen receptor, and they generated speci- specific CAR T cells that would attack. A subset of the stellate cells that are the most fibrogenic, the baddest actors in driving fibrosis. And they showed that if you give uh, CAR T cells directed at the most activated stellate cells, you can clear those cells and improve fibrosis. So that's a kind of a futuristic cell-based therapy. Even more recently, spectacular work from the laboratory of Jonathan Epstein at Penn built on the approach that he had also pioneered using CAR T cells. But in this case, he's providing an mRNA light lipid nanoparticle to turn normal T cells within the body into CAR T cells that will then attack fibrosis-causing cells. Now, in his case, he studies fibrosis in heart, he hasn't studied fibrosis in liver, but if the idea of a lipid nanoparticle and mRNA sounds familiar, it's because that's the basis of at least the Moderna and Pfizer uh, COVID-19 vaccines. And so those, miraculous success stories have brought lipid nanoparticle and mRNA therapies right into the spotlight, into the mainstream of therapies, not only for as vaccines, but also therapies that could program lymphocytes to clear fibrogenic cells in damaged tissues, whether it's heart, liver, or possibly other tissues as well. So this is a very hot area Uh, It's leveraging not only advanced knowledge about uh, pharmaceutical chemistry and receptor biology, but even more advanced understanding of lipid nanoparticles, mRNA technology, and um, the possibility of programming T cells to kill fibrosis-causing cells. Dr. Epstein's work was published in Science in the last couple of months. The first author is Rurik, R-U-R-I-K and colleagues, I encourage uh, your viewers to take a look at that. They have some lovely diagrams and descriptions that help uh, simplify the message, but still underscore the novelty and the excitement around this technology.
0: Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and NASH, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, are risk factors for liver cancer. So what happens in the process? Why some patients progress to liver cancer? And what is the context of uh, cancer in the liver on the background of
1: NASH and NAFLD? Well, let me make some general points first. Um, any disease that leads to advanced scarring and cirrhosis is in the liver is uh, a risk factor for cancer. Uh, and in fact, primary liver cancer very rarely occurs in a normal liver, unlike some other organ cancers. And so we know, first of all, that patients with more advanced disease are at risk for developing cancer, and when the fibrosis gets advanced enough, those patients should be routinely screened every six months with an imaging test to detect any early cancers at a time when they might be curable. Um, Now, for most of the cancers that have occurred, liver cancers in the last 25 years, almost all of them occurred in patients who had chronic liver disease from viral hepatitis, hepatitis B, particularly in Asia, as well as hepatitis B, uh, C worldwide. We have good therapies for those uh, those viral infections, and so we are beginning to see the, um, the risk of HCC or the numbers of HCC go down as we get better at treating the underlying viral disease. An important feature of the cancers that occur in those patients with viral hepatitis is that patients typically already have cirrhosis when they develop the cancer. And so we know that we need to start screening when they're close to developing cirrhosis. What's of some concern about the cancers we're beginning to see in patients with NASH is that there's a, a slightly higher possibility that that cancer may occur even before the patient is cirrhotic or has advanced disease. So there's a about a third of the cancers that occur in patients with NASH are occurring we would almost say prematurely, meaning when they don't even have cirrhosis yet. And that has important implications for w- risk uh, in non-cirrhotic NASH and also when we should start screening. Now, screening guidelines don't necessarily recommend screening for cancer unless patients with NASH have fibrosis or advanced fibrosis. But first of all, we know that the cancers occur earlier than in viral hepatitis-related cancers. We also know that they may have a different responsiveness to the leading therapies for cancer. So as you and your viewers may know, there's been a revolution in cancer therapy and so-called the development of checkpoint blockade that effectively unleashes the immune system in a patient to attack the cancer internally. Um, And those drugs have been uh, successful in many cancers, particularly lung cancer, They've been slightly less successful in liver cancer, but they still are more successful than the conventional therapies. But it looks like that the cancers that arise in patients with viral hepatitis are slightly more responsive to those immunologic therapies than the cancers when they arise in NASH patients. And we're beginning to understand what's different about the immune microenvironment in the cancers in NASH that makes them a little bit more resistant to these uh, exciting checkpoint therapies. Uh, Early days, as with so many elements of NASH, but we're beginning to separate out the drivers of cancer in patients with NASH that are different from those drivers of cancer in patients with viral hepatitis B and C.
0: Professor Friedman, you mentioned the screening. So according to guidelines, but also you wrote in one of the reviews about personalizing screening for hepatocellular carcinoma in NASH uh, patients. What are the factors that help in personalizing that screening? What um, patients and their physicians should pay attention to?
1: This is still a very rapidly evolving field. Certainly the presence and stage of fibrosis by itself uh, is an important tripwire to indicate the need for screening. Uh, A family history of liver cancer uh, is also very compelling, even though we don't know what it is about that family history. And so when we hear that a patient had a loved one uh, first or even second degree relative who had NASH with a cancer, we also have a heightened uh, concern and a heightened screening. Uh, In addition, some of those genetic risks that I mentioned, in particular in a gene known as PNPLA3, it's known that patients who have a risk polymorphism or risk DNA-based pair change uh, in PNPLA3 that that increases the risk of NASH also increases the risk that that NASH patient will develop cancer. So if you have a patient that has two uh, copies of the risk allele or the risk DNA sequence in PNPLA3, that patient uh, indicates, or that indicates that the patient should be screened a bit more aggressively, although the exact frequency with which they should be screened has not been firmly established. And probably over time, we're going to accumulate more and more genetic risks, which when you add them up, will confer uh, either a low, a medium, or a high risk of cancer in patients who have NASH. We're still in early days in trying to uh, define a real risk score that indicates uh, in a very personalized or individualized way when uh, and how patients should be screened or how their cancer should be treated. As you know, there's a whole revolution underway in um, characterizing the expression of specific genes in tumors throughout the body to indicate which uh, of the immunologic therapies are likely to be most effective. And those approaches are now increasingly being tried in liver cancer patients as well, uh, where we're trying to personalize not only the risk, but also the therapy Based on the kinds of genes that are expressed by their tumor.
0: If we talk about hepatic fibrosis, the non-alcoholic steatohepatitis treatment, why there are no medications, there are no drugs approved yet for non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, despite all the research, and you are a renowned researcher in fatty
1: liver disease and its genetics and uh, metabolic effects. This is one of the biggest challenges, certainly, that I've confronted in my career, um, and reflects the fact that NASH is a much more complex disease than we first gave it credit for, if you will. Uh, So uh, we know that there are a number of features that occur in NASH. I mentioned most of them already, the fat, the inflammation, the injury, the scarring. Uh, What we don't know is whether every patient who has NASH that we diagnose under the microscope, whether they have exactly the same disease. So it could be that some patients have NASH primarily because they have too much fat and the fat is toxic, others because their stellate cells may be more activated, uh, and others yet because they have too much of certain kind of inflammatory cells. So we're just starting to think about the fact that not all NASH is identical. Even if it looks the same under the microscope, it could be that the pathways that led to the development of NASH may be different across different patients. And that could explain why no drug has had a benefit in all patients. Even the drugs that look most promising Typically, only benefit about a third, at most half of the patients. Uh, and that may suggest that not everybody has the same disease drivers in their livers to cause the NASH picture, even if it looks the same under the microscope. Uh, it may also be that, you know, this is a multi pathway disease. And if you block one pathway, other pathways are driven to create more fat and inflammation. Uh, And so uh, we may need multiple targets and multiple drugs with different mechanisms of action that are complementary, And that's sort of where the field is starting to go now is to think more about combination therapies uh, because we wanna hit more than one target. And we don't really have um, a clear uh, understanding of what is the Achilles heel from a treatment perspective. Is there one pathway or is there one molecule that drives the disease in every patient with NASH so far we haven't described that so-called uh, achille's heel uh, and so again we're still left trying to use different combinations of treatments and uh, you know the the programming of the body and the liver to hold on to fat is very hardwired and it's going to take a, a deeper understanding and a bit more patience before we come up with something that really will move the needle i don't think we're far away in terms of our first approved drugs i think we'll see that within the next couple of years but it will be an iterative and slowly progressive process where we may have to individualize therapies or combinations uh, and we may have to use uh, even more than one or two drugs, as I mentioned, uh, to get a maximal effect. So yes, it's been very frustrating that we don't have an approved drug yet for NASH. In the greater scheme of things, I think the time horizon has been relatively short. If you look at a disease that turned out to be easier to treat, and that would be hepatitis C, even though we had the viral sequence as early as 1989, it was really only in the 2010s that we finally developed really effective, well-tolerated curative therapies. And frankly, hitting a virus is a lot easier than hitting a systemic disease like metabolic syndrome associated with NASH. And so I think we need to be both uh, assertive and aggressive in testing uh, new drugs, unearthing more basic science discoveries that define targets, Uh, but we also need to be more patient in anticipating slow but steady progress in the therapeutic landscape of NASH. What are the
0: leading candidates uh, for treatment of NASH and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? Uh, and how do they work? Can you give just a sort of a general overview, perhaps, because there is a lot of clinical trials going on?
1: Right. There are literally probably, you know, 75 different drugs that are in clinical trials now for NASH. Uh, as you may know, drugs are tested in a sequ- sequential way as dictated by the FDA, with phase one for safety, phase two for efficacy in small groups of patients phase three for efficacy and safety in large groups, hundreds or thousands of patients. And so one of the ways to prioritize or stratify the prospects for drug therapy of NASH is by looking at the drugs that are most advanced in terms of their uh, phase of of testing. The one that was and has been ahead of the pack is a drug known as obeticolic acid, which is a small molecule that activates a cellular receptor known as FXR or Farnasoid X receptor. Uh, And the company that generated or makes uh, and tests obeticolic acid intercept had a phase three trial uh, that I think at least a couple of years ago showed some benefit. It increased the likelihood of fibrosis uh, regression, uh, doubled the likelihood of fibrosis regression from about 11% to 23% in those who were treated with the drug. Uh, That probably should have been enough to gain approval but the FDA raised some concerns about the safety in some patients. And so the company is in the midst of trying to address safety concerns and convince the FDA that the drug is not only effective, but it's safe. Uh, If they can do that successfully, and I don't know if they will, then they may be the first drug to approval. Uh, The other drug that's in phase three trials that uh, looks very well tolerated and certainly so far is very safe is a drug known as resmediram, which is a small molecule that also activates a kind of a nuclear receptor in, uh, in responsive cells. But in this case, the receptor is the um, thyroid hormone beta receptor. And so this is a thyroid hormone beta agonist. And that's in phase three studies now. It looks very safe. In contrast to the FXR agonists from Intercept and other drugs, this one actually also improves cardiovascular risk factors. In particular, it seems to lower the lipids that give rise to risk of heart disease. And it's worth digressing for a minute and reminding ourselves that the most likely cause of death in a patient with NASH until they're cirrhotic, the most likely cause is cardiovascular disease. As I mentioned, this is part of a systemic disease uh, known as the metabolic syndrome. And so drugs that not only improve the liver but could reduce the risk of cardiovascular events like perhaps the madrigal drug, uh have a, you know have a sort of a double benefit for treating or killing two birds with one stone, if you will, in treating both cardiovascular and liver complications. So that drug is still in phase three trials. We hope to learn more about its efficacy in a large number of patients by towards the end of 2022. Most recently, there's been a lot of excitement about a, a diabetes a class of diabetes drugs that are, um, are uh, glucagon-like peptide one agonists. Uh, The most widely known is semaglutide, uh, which is made by Novo Nordisk. Uh, And there have been some trials that suggest that it's very effective, not only at treating diabetes, but may improve fat in the liver as well. That drug is undergoing phase three trials there. And like the resmediram uh, analogy, uh, that may offer the benefit of both treating the diabetes as well as the liver disease, but data are still anticipated. Behind that are literally dozens of other drugs, mostly in phase two trials, a few in phase three, too numerous to mention except to say that they're uh, targeting every element of the disease pathogenesis, beginning, beginning with the gut, going right through to the liver and the inflammation and scarring as well.
0: There is a lot of medications that are off patent. So potentially there is a strategy to repurpose drugs for NASH, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, or for uh, fatty liver disease treatment, and therefore also to reduce the risk of hepatocellular carcinoma, liver cancer. So I'll just mention a few, and perhaps you can comment on some. So there are statins, there are metformin, there are nonsteroidal anti-inflammatory agents, uh, such as selecoxib, aspirin perhaps. There is rapamycin, sirolimus, ACE inhibitors, Medications against blood pressure, high blood pressure, such as perindopril, ramipril, also mentioned erlotinib. These are all already uh, oncology-related drugs. There are also some compounds, such as curcumin, such as vitamin D, and also coffee.
1: So, as I mentioned, uh, the 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 concept of using drugs or repurposing existing drugs is a very sound one, Um, and. There are certain evidence, not only from my lab, but from other sites that some of these drugs may have benefit. Now I have to say of those that you mentioned, most of them have been tested in NASH and are not terribly effective. Not metformin, uh, ACE inhibitors, um, statins, uh, and and pretty much everything on your list has has been tried admittedly in smaller phase two trials, but certainly there was no signal that would suggest that this is really gonna be the answer to NASH. Um, now, uh, patients with Nash should probably be on statins because most of them have hyperlipidemia, and we know that those drugs are universally—I would say—you know, pretty safe, and they're as—and they are as safe in Nash patients as they are in patients without Nash. Um, so it, it is true that many patients with Nash, in fact, perhaps most patients with Nash, will end up on a statin. But we should have no illusions—that statin is not going to to cure uh, or improve their NASH. And so additional therapies, in addition to treating their um, cardiovascular risk with a statin may be necessary. Yeah, so erlotinib is uh, is a, you know, effectively a receptor blocker chemotherapy. As, As I understand it, erlotinib is not that well tolerated. Now it's tolerable enough for a patient with cancer where the, you know, the risk is profound and immediate, Uh, But we have to remember that if we're going to be treating uh, NASH, uh, most patients are going to have no symptoms from their liver. So it's a little bit like treating hypertension. We know that treating hypertension saves lives, reduces the risk of stroke and heart attack. But patients with hypertension generally have no symptoms. So it took many years to get to the point where we have drugs that were well tolerated and that uh, had no symptoms so that we could you know, effectively treat hypertension across the population. Um, and so it's similar in so far as Nash is a chronic disease as well. And when we think about therapies, we need to assume that these are going to be lifelong therapies, just like we treat hyperlipidemia lifelong with statins, and we treat hypertension with antihypertensives, all of which is a way of saying that the drug needs to be well tolerated and easy to administer. So for example, there have been some drugs and clinical trials that require the patient be injected every day. Now That's great to prove whether a drug is effective, but thinking about convincing a patient to, to inject a drug every day, now it's not insulin, which of course you have no choice, uh, but the concept of, uh, of trying to develop a drug that might require daily in- injections for years or decades is a pretty tough sell.
0: Professor Friedman, what do you think about the effects of coffee on the liver metabolism? Is there a sizable effect? There was, um, been, I think, New England Journal of Medicine review like a year back or so. So uh, coffee and liver function, what's your general view?
1: Well, here's the good, here's the good news. Yeah, I've, as, a, as a, an avid coffee drinker, I'm pleased to tell you that many studies now looking at large populations and correlating risk of liver disease with coffee consumption have come to the consistent conclusion that regular coffee consumption reduces the risk of liver disease it's amazing the the the, the epidemiologic data is very compelling and it's not simply the caffeine in the coffee it's probably some other element of the coffee um, but it is generally caffeinated more than decaffeinated uh, but we don't know what it is that is from within that coffee that is protecting the liver uh, but it's certainly reasonable advice in our liver disease patients that if they drink coffee, they shouldn't be inhibited about it. Probably up to three cups a day is probably somewhat protective. Uh, and uh, if they haven't if they haven't tried drinking coffee, if they like it, they should go ahead and drink it um, because uh, there is this very uh, impressive correlation between uh, chronic uh, or long-term coffee drinking and lower risk of liver disease now it won't cure liver disease by itself so it's not like patients should avoid going to the doctor just drink coffee and assume they're going to be fine um, but overall it does seem to be a small component of a, a beneficial uh, diet at least in terms of the coffee that may reduce liver uh, liver injury now coffee has other uh, you know effects as well and certainly caffeinated coffee can raise the pulse and so you know uh, It's always prudent to speak to one's doctor about their coffee consumption, but the epidemiologic data is actually pretty impressive.
0: Professor Friedman, what is the future in liver disease treatment and fatty liver disease treatment, NASH treatment, and in hepatology in general? You wrote a very thorough review and you are a leading world-renowned researcher on liver diseases.
1: It's a very exciting time, Anton. it's worth uh, looking at the arc of progress over the course of my career as an example of how, much, how far we've come and how far we might still go. You know, when I was a liver fellow at UCSF in the early 1980s, we basically had no specific treatments for liver disease. What we had was uh, diuretics or uh, water pills, uh, Lasix uh, and aldactone. Uh, We had corticosteroids if we thought that there was a lot of inflammation in the liver, uh, you know, something like prednisone. We had a syrup called uh, lactulose to try to change the risk of of altered thinking in patients with very advanced liver disease, and we had no liver transplantation. So fast forward now 35 to 40 years, we have liver transplantation, which is life-saving, We have curative therapies for hepatitis C, which wasn't even known, the the, the virus wasn't even discovered in the early 80s here. We went from discovering the virus to curing it. Hepatitis B now we have uh, many effective therapies and and newer drugs are trying to clear the virus, which we haven't succeeded in doing for Hep B yet. Um, We have treatments for biliary disease. We have a better understanding about the genetics. I mean, it's just unrecognizable how far we have come. But I do believe that the liver has many secrets still to yield. Uh, I think among the prospects that are uh, not necessarily for Nash, but for liver disease, I'm very excited about the prospects of xenotransplantation. That is having humanized uh, organ donation from mammals, particularly pigs. As you know, there was a very um, high-profile transplant of a pig heart into a uh, humanized pig heart. Uh, into a man recently at University of Maryland, I think in late 2021, Uh, as far as I know, the patient is still doing okay. But it does speak to the idea that uh, the the terrible organ shortage that uh, we confront in patients who need donor organs with advanced liver disease may be somewhat addressed by the availability of xenotransplantation. Now, there's still lots of hurdles to overcome. The biggest risk, of course, is rejection. But also the pig genome has endogenous retroviruses that need to be cleared out of their genome using CRISPR or other gene therapy techniques before that organ can be safe to transplant into humans. But I do think xenotransplantation uh, could be uh, you know, a major game changer for the most advanced patients. But at the same time, I'm confident we're going to have antifibrotic therapies. Uh, we'll have an- more effective an- anti-inflammatory therapies. We can already reduce liver fat. Um, and I actually think that the li- liver's greatest mystery, and this is not just me, the liver's greatest mystery is the ability of the liver to regenerate. You can literally uh, surgically resect two thirds of a healthy human liver. You can take the resected specimen with attached blood vessels and you can put that into a recipient. And the remaining one third of the liver that was left behind in the donor will grow back to full size. Now that only happens if the liver is healthy, but no other organ can regenerate. And so I believe that uh, liver regeneration and the ability to suppress fibrosis as the liver regenerates holds an array of secrets that could have profound impact on both understanding and ultimately treating liver disease and perhaps promoting regeneration. And there are already some pro-regenerative therapies that are in clinical trials, so we're not that far off. Um, And uh, I just think that the idea of the yin yang between blocking fibrosis while regenerating, and how the liver knows to do that, I think harbors a lot of important clues that we need to dig deep to find.
0: Professor Friedman, with your vast experience in liver disease research and treatment, what are the questions that patient with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, with non-alcoholic steatohepatitis should ask, but perhaps are not asking that much? And what are the top questions that uh, patients with uh, chronic liver diseases do ask?
1: Well, I think the, the main question every patient wants to know is, will this change my life? You know, w- will this make me sick? Will this shorten my lifespan? Will I need a transplant in some more advanced uh, patients? Um, so I, I think that's certainly the question that every liver doctor who sees a patient with liver disease uh, may be confronting, but uh, I think the other questions also are You know something we can imagine what about my diet um what about my family um you know where do i go with more questions i think those are the kinds of uh, questions that we can anticipate you know there are lots of resources the american liver foundation has great information for liver patients you can go to their website the aasld now is increasingly reaching out to patients there are a number of um Uh, resources that patients will seek uh, from the internet to uh, gain more information. And they should certainly come to their doctor armed with those questions. Um, But uh, I think, you know, sometimes the answers are easy. We can reassure a patient. Sometimes the answers are unknown. And sometimes the answers are hard, meaning we have to tell patients that even though they have no symptoms, they have advanced liver disease and we need to pay attention uh, very soon.
0: Are there any questions that patients perhaps do not ask as often as they should?
1: I don't know that patients are us, you know, patients ask important questions. Uh, Certainly they should uh, ask questions about how to improve their liver health. Uh, And uh, that includes, should they, or can they drink any alcohol? Um, And certainly if they're obese or overweight and they have fat in the liver, we need to work with them and nutritional expertise Uh, because the first mainstay of therapy for NASH, which I really haven't mentioned but should have, is weight loss, weight loss and exercise. Uh, And in fact, if you look at all the benefits of weight loss, it probably has broader benefits on NASH than any single drug we've identified yet. Uh, And so we have to be uh, very assiduous and uh, and consistent in our message that for patients who have uh, elevated weight, We really need to work hard with them over the long run to reduce their weight. It's very hard. Um, That's why there's all these drugs being developed, but uh, only 5% of patients who lose weight can keep it off to the extent that it will benefit their NASH. But there's no question that for patients with NASH, significant weight loss, meaning 10 kilograms or more, um, can really have a profound impact on and improve their liver health.
0: Professor Friedman, is there a clinical vignette that you could discuss that illustrates some of the topics we discussed today, perhaps a patient story or sort of a composite of patient story with your huge experience?
1: Well, I think, you know, we all see patients who are uh, who are worried uh, because they have had no inkling that they have liver problems, uh, yet they have some vague pain and the doctor may get an ultrasound and they, they're told they have fat or their liver tests are elevated. And so there's a great deal of fear, um, I, I wouldn't say in one specific vignette, but that's a very probably the most common presentation is that they had no idea they had liver disease. And also uh, that they equate inappropriately the presence of any liver problems with the fact that they may drink too much alcohol. Most patients with liver disease do not drink alcohol to excess, but unfortunately uh, the, the liver disease field at large has carried this burden in that patients or their families often inappropriately assume that because they have liver problems, they drink too much alcohol, and that's usually not the case. So I think that's, that would be my parting uh, comment in terms of uh, talking to patients and reassuring them that most liver disease is not from alcohol, and they don't need to explain that to, uh, to themselves, to their families, or to anyone who asks.
0: Professor Friedman, is there anything in your personal interest, in your philosophy, in your life experience and wisdom that uh, you'd like to share with our viewers?
1: I've been blessed by uh, having a rich career that is is infinitely challenging, stimulating, uh, and from which I've continued to grow. Uh, I had the privilege of writing a piece called A Master's Perspective for our liver specialty journal called Hepatology, and I wrote that piece in 2015. Uh, and one of the things I emphasized there was uh, how profoundly important mentoring is. And so uh, I would say in terms of my own personal philosophy, I've always been acutely aware of w- w- how important and what a positive impact I can make on my trainees, whether they're students, residents, postdocs, fellows, even faculty, by uh, learning how to mentor and making it a priority. And I've you know, outlined in that article, Uh, in 2015 the many ways that mentoring can be uh, effective and why it's so important in influencing the future of our specialty and our physician scientists and our trainees. And ultimately that will benefit our patients.
0: Well, that is uh, certainly a key message because it also helps to train the next generation of professionals who continue to stand uh, on the shoulders of giants such as you are.
1: Well, thank you. I I never considered myself a giant. I'm just pleased I could make a contribution and uh, made a small difference in the world, at least as far as liver disease is concerned. I've been very lucky.
0: Thank you, Professor Friedman, for this conversation. We hope to come back to you in the future to hear more exciting news about liver disease research. And thank you for your research and clinical work.
1: It was my pleasure and I'd be delighted to come back anytime, Anton.
0: That's it for today. Thank you for listening. If you found this conversation useful, please share it with someone who could benefit from it too. And visit diagnosticdetectives.com to learn more and sign up for our free member updates on hot topics from world's leading medical experts. See you next time.